Welcome to the Environment Journal podcast, which this time is brought to you in association with Arup. Arup is an independent firm of designers, planners, engineers, consultants, and technical specialists. Its aim is to find a better way and shape a better world. For more information, please visit www.arup.com. Hello, my name is Stephen Sorrell, and I'm an author, commentator and advisor on climate change, low carbon and renewable energy. Every month in this series, I'll be speaking to some of the key figures in sustainability and asking them about the work they are doing, the beliefs they have on climate change, global warming and their visions for the future. In this episode, we'll be focusing on the key subject of air quality, which has been rising in the level of public awareness for some time now, and therefore something I wanted to cover in this series. To help us understand the significance of air quality to the wider environmental issues, our guest on this podcast is James Bellinger, who is a senior air quality consultant with Arup. Welcome, James. Hi, Stephen. Perhaps we should just go back a space because... um, I think we should perhaps start our detailed look at air pollution by being clear on what we're actually talking about. And I'm I'm not sure I'm entirely clear on the different elements that make up the air quality space. So um, I I wanted to ask you if you could explain some things such as what the key elements are. Uh, I mentioned nitrogen oxide. Um, Then there's nitrogen dioxide. I'm starting to wish I'd listened a little more in O-level chemistry in uh, Prostatin High School in 1976. Um, Then we go on to particulates 2.5 and so on. And I hear there's even a category of ultrafine particles now. Could you just run us through those? uh, Yes, absolutely. And it really links back to the point that you started with, that awareness is growing. And it is a challenge. We're talking about growing in awareness, but something that you cannot see. We did a series of talks recently at Arab about designing for the invisible, where we linked up with our colleagues who work in uh, fields of microclimate and wind, for example. Both, you can't see these things. And air quality was perfect for that, that series. And we were able to talk about the type of pollutants that exist in our cities. And those are namely nitrogen oxides and also fine particulate matter. So... Those are the key pollutants that we focus on typically in air quality, the reason being that those are the local air quality pollutants which are exceeding current government health-based objectives. Nitrogen oxide is formed through the combustion um, that we see that powers our motor vehicles and also a lot of our energy in the UK. Right. So that's a, so that's a harmful gas, then, isn't it? That's right. It's yeah, a gas yeah. that you can't you can't see it. Um, and the impact of nitrogen dioxide is known to harm human respiratory systems. Uh, it will result in asthma, um, and will have long term implications on on your health. Similarly, fine particulate matter is very very small pieces of material, which is a sort of complex mixture of solid and liquid particulates um, made up of organic and inorganic substances and those are known to have 
equally severe health impacts, everything from lung cancer to respiratory and cardiovascular diseases. So they stick in your lungs effectively? They can get into your lungs, they can get into your bloodstream, they can get into your brain. It's, it's serious stuff and not the type of thing that you want to be breathing. Now, there are a huge suite of other pollutants that we do look at, things like volatile organic compounds and trace metals. But those two, nitrogen dioxide and fine particulate matter, are the key pollutants that we look at uh, in cities because of the levels that they are at. They're the ones, right. Let's just mention the COVID um, pandemic as well. Obviously, still in the news at the moment, the UK is coming out of its third lockdown, or come out of its third lockdown, and things are starting to look rosy again, or better, should I say, perhaps. But we all remember what happened last time when the curve went straight back up again as soon as um, uh, as soon as things were released off. Um, and I, I, public policy has largely been to lock down the country when the spread's out of control, and that may not be the official parlance that the government uses, but essentially that's what it means. Um, and those three lockdown periods have, um, uh, well, we've all got the scars on our back, haven't we, from uh, from them. But what do you think the general impact of, of those lockdowns has been on air quality? I actually gave a series of talks about this um, last year, really, because of the fascinating impact that we saw when the first lockdown kicked in and there were dramatic reductions in nitrogen dioxide concentrations within our cities. And yes, that was really helpful in some respects from an air quality point of view, because when else could you put in place such a draconian measure to see what influence and, and what is left as well. That's the important part. What was left, what trips were essential, they were, they're going to be part of just an inevitable baseline. So you know what level you can get to, get down to. And it was really interesting to see how that crept back up as vehicle emission, as vehicle trips started increasing again. So some surprising, but yes, people were able to experience for a short period of time, fantastic benefits of quieter streets um, and better air quality. But that's, I think that's the point I wanted to get to, though, because, of course, the first lockdown was much more complied with, shall I say, I don't know, um, vigorous than, than the perhaps the latter two. And there was all these stories, wasn't there, of of the, uh, hearing the birds sing and and uh, uh, nature seemed to suddenly rebound a bit. And what was it? I think it was in Clandudno, the goats came down off the orm and were wandering around the streets and all that, that type of thing. Um, do you think that's, uh, that experience, opening that door and showing the public what perhaps it could be like, is going to be enough to bolster further public support? I mean, that's a tricky question. And ultimately, the point I was making in some of these talks that I gave back then was really about, right, you've seen the impacts that it can have. We've seen the increase in cycling and walking that can occur during those times. Yeah. And these are the types of policy measures that need to be put in place to grasp the nettle, really. Take, take this opportunity yeah. when people have understood the benefits of being able to take your children out for a bike ride safely in a clean environment. And actually, now is the time to continue with that. Whilst we are still obviously in an uncertain future, and TfL gave a really interesting talk recently on their five 
future recovery scenarios and how they see London bouncing back um, in a, from a transport perspective and how you know, the myriad of different policy and economic influences will, will change those scenarios. There is now still a really good time to build on some of the great things that we saw, things like the introduction of low traffic neighbourhoods, um, which whilst they may well have their sort of detractors and people making loud noises, I think we saw at the latest local elections that those people who are objecting to LTNs got a very, very low percentage of the actual voters' um, voters' votes. So yes, I think people have voted there with their feet and... yeah. You know, where we're seeing things like Islington, low traffic neighbourhoods reducing traffic by 57% and a 2% reduction on out, outside that area, um, cycling up 43%. Those are all good things, I think. We'll be on yes. the right side of history. Yeah, yeah. But it, uh, sometimes data helps us and sometimes maybe data doesn't help us. And how do we square the, that with the issue that DEFRA has said that there's been long-term improvements achieved in both nitrogen dioxide and particulate matter over, say, 20 years. And would, would that cause people to say, well, maybe we don't need to go mad about this. It's it's all going in the right direction. What, what do you think about that? Um, as I said, I think I think DEFRA have done a, a, a good job, um, particularly in the industrial area. And concentrations have reduced. That's That's been a good thing. But has it happened quick enough? And... What are we going to say when we know that each year in London alone there's 4,000 deaths? You mentioned at the start, sort of seven to eight million worldwide. I mean, yeah, yeah. Let's take the ban of petrol and diesel cars by 2030 as an example. That was an excellent move. They brought it forward from 2040, even better. But we're still talking about 36,000 deaths in London before that kicks in, and even when that kicks in, it will take a while to yeah. really reduce those numbers down. So. This is still a significant issue. It will remain a significant issue for a while. Yeah. And doing what we can in the shortest time possible is still absolutely imperative. This podcast has been brought to you by environmentjournal.online and airqualitynews.com. Environment Journal and Air Quality News deliver features, opinion and daily breaking news across many sectors, including sustainability, energy, waste, net zero, climate change, air quality, housing and transport. Last month, more than 170,000 people accessed its content online, viewing over 210,000 pages on the websites. To stay fully informed with all the latest developments, you can sign up for the free newsletters on both environmentjournal.online and airqualitynews.com. And if you want to comment on this podcast or would like to contribute to future episodes, then do get in touch via hello at environmentjournal.online. Um, let's let's have a think about government policy then. So obviously we've got the Climate Change Act 2008 sets the targets, which are now net zero carbon by 2050 against a 1990 baseline. And the Committee on Climate Change, as you know, uh, have recently published its sixth carbon budget. And that was notable because it included uh, shipping, including ferries and cruise ships, 
and also aviation. And I don't know whether you spotted it, but um, one of the journalists on Air Quality News, Jamie Hailstone, wrote an interesting piece in the um, the magazine in, in March called Terror at 20,000 Feet, which concerned the air quality in aircraft cabins during flights, um, which was as the title suggested, rather worrying, that when people think that the, the aircraft is actually sealed in air terms, it's not. And uh, air is taken in from the back of the plane where the engine is at 200 degrees with all sorts of pollutants in it, unfiltered, and then put around, put around the cabin. Um, but um, uh, effectively, um, uh, under the um, carbon budget, uh, shipping and aviation have always tended to be thought of as in the, the difficult box. How, how do you think we can address those particular difficult areas? Well, those those two areas that you mentioned, ports and aviation, are inevitably, and I think rail could come into that to some extent, are inevitably going to become areas of greater focus in future as... Yeah. Hopefully, we see reductions from other sources, namely vehicles, and therefore the total percentage of emissions at UK level from those sources will therefore increase. So they will come under greater scrutiny, and they, they already are. Um, the work we're actually doing with a number of major infrastructure projects, um, ports, and aviation and rail across the UK has, has been fantastic because we've been able to put in place and work with those types of clients and projects that look at green managed growth for instance yes and that would be building on what they can do from a carbon perspective what they can do from an air quality perspective what influence they can have on local air quality but also the wider climate change effects and also put in place checks and balances so whilst they're going through these major planning applications and development consent orders, what can they do to firstly prove the impacts they're having, the benefits they're having to the environment? Yes. Uh, beneficial impacts, I should say. And also how they can then check once their applications have been consented and are being used, what can they do to make sure that what they've promised in a DCO, for instance, is actually being fulfilled in reality yeah and those by putting that into development consent order legislation um will actually force these major infrastructure clients to really continue to work on things yes. and make sure that yeah. what they are putting in place is effective yeah I, I wanted to i wanted to come back to planning but but just before we leave that point um do you think those companies accept they have to check? Absolutely, yeah. And I think the good thing, and one thing I've really enjoyed about working with those types of clients, is that they they really do genuinely show the willingness and understanding around the climate emergency, but also air quality and what they need to do to fulfil both of those two separate objectives. And yes, it's yes, it's been really good. I'd say from the type of work that I do that I can reach out to client uh, to internal experts within our on transport side on hydrogen or electric vehicles or yeah. policy you know freight management all sorts of different areas that actually all need to come together in order to make these improvements there's another link here isn't there I think 
And that's um, a direct link, particularly when you're thinking about things like aviation, with social justice. So um, I read somewhere recently that I think it's an amazing number. I think it's something like um, 5% of the world's population take 95% of all the flights worldwide. And I, I'm, I'm not sure what the situation is in, in relation to uh, cruises, of course, and, and other uh, elements like that of shipping. Um, but explain how you think um, air quality and social justice are, are linked. Well, they're very closely linked, and it comes back to the fact that, unfortunately, the the houses that are more affordable are those that are in less desirable locations, so typically closer to busy roads where air pollution will be higher. And so there's there's really big points around equity to be made um, in relation to air quality. And again, as you say about aircraft, people who can afford cars are going to be the ones driving. And maybe people who live next to busy roads can't even afford cars. So they're going to be, their health is being detrimentally affected by something that they can't even afford to, to partake in. Not that they should be, but just, you know, Everyone in society is, is equally um, responsible, but actually those who are um, maybe on the lower income end are much, much more affected. Do you think there's a, an awareness, though, amongst the general populace that there's a clear link between air pollution and deprivation? Do you think people understand that? I don't think it's widely understood, and... It's, it's, it's an interesting point that um, has come up recently on a piece of work I've been doing um, with several schools in South London. And those are, have been in areas that have a high, high proportion of um, BAME and low-income families. And yep. they actually have you know, other issues to be worrying about in their day-to-day lives. And educating and explaining to them um, what, what should be done around air quality um, can, can be a challenge because, because of those other issues that they, that they face in their day-to-day lives. Um, I've been lucky enough to work with Global Action Plan, who are fantastic at working on that behavioural side of things, whereas Arab on this particular project, we're very much looking at the physical interventions that can be put in place to improve air quality outside schools, for instance, in, in this case. Um, but you need those two things to come together. In a recent presentation by Arab, a whole host of potential solutions to this um, were mentioned, and, and you've just referred to some of those. But in my list here, I've got working with business to reduce business travel, rolling out uh, low emission zones, which we just talked about, incentivizing the taking up of low emission vehicles, promote consolidation of deliveries, that sort of last mile, uh, that type of thing. Uh, controlling sources of particulate matter, um, such as fires and bonfires. And there's a particular issue now with wood-burning stoves, I think, isn't there? And and creating positive health-based evidence that effectively shows people why it's important to do this. But for you, what what are the most important areas, not necessarily just from that list, but from your work, what what are the most important areas that we should be focusing on? So my... My personal opinion, and it's something I'm passionate about as well personally, is is cycling. And I think that 
the infrastructure is expensive, but it's needed yes. in order to get people out there. And I think it's very much a case of if you build it, they will come. And that's been demonstrated um, across London and across cities in the UK. And I really do feel like that is one of the key measures that we should be looking at in terms of reducing space for cars and lorries on our streets and improving the safe options for cycling and walking. And those things should go, go together with other things that you mentioned there around incentivizing low emission vehicles. But as we said earlier, we, we don't want just everyone to switch to EVs. No. We want to reduce no. the number of vehicles on yes. our streets. And journeys, yes. And journeys, absolutely. And then other things you mentioned there, like consolidation of deliveries. I've worked on lots of consolidation projects here at Arup, and they can be extremely effective. But I know, and I think I should hold my hand up to the fact that this year, while I've been at home, that I've definitely made use of online delivery services. And yes, I, yes. I have no doubt that the number of trips just down my road has increased just purely as a result of me being here this year, yes. whereas I wasn't so much in 2019. So, Well, I, I think there's people who are on first name terms <laughs> with uh, DHL and Amazon and the, the delivery people. Yes. Well, isn't it all going to be electric drones in future? And uh, I think there's all sorts of things being talked about, isn't there? Absolutely. And I know that colleagues of mine in, in the Los Angeles office for Arup are developing policies around that exact, exactly that type of topic. So watch this space. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Let's. You mentioned buildings earlier on, um, and I think the the area of planning and design of buildings as well as construction is something we perhaps should touch on. Um, and buildings, of, of course, are a source of concern in relation to air quality. Explain the significance of, of buildings in, in this agenda. Buildings themselves, um, when operational, um, do contribute quite significant amounts of um, pollution to the local area. And those are from typically boilers or CHPs that might be added for electric and heating for those buildings. And so doing something about those sources of emissions is important. And that might be retrofitting or it might be through requiring clean systems or all electric buildings in future through the planning regime. But in addition to that, just getting those buildings there, if it's a new development, and the construction of those have their own impacts. And we know um, the significant impacts that the construction industry has on air quality at a local level, um, but also thinking about the people who work on construction sites and their own exposure to pollution from the kit that they use. Uh, we're actually working on a project at the moment, um, which is paid for by Impact on Urban Health, who are um, part of the Guys and St. Thomas Foundation Trust. And, you know, their motivation is, is, is fantastic because it's very much focused on developing solutions that they can demonstrate work. And so what we're doing is, is looking at a number of exemplar construction sites in the UK and identifying changes that they can make to improve air quality. And this is, yeah. again, something that will improve climate impacts. Yeah. But we are very much focusing on local air quality and exposure. 
to people who live near there or work on construction sites. Yeah. Right, okay. My last uh, question then. Um, Of all the the guests I have on the Environment Journal podcast, I like to ask about personal contributions, about your own life and how uh, how you contribute towards climate change. You've already said you're a, a keen cyclist. What other things do you do in your personal life to help this agenda forwards? Well, absolutely. I think uh, I, I would always start with, with that cycling point, taking the most efficient mode of transport that exists. And yes, my, myself and my family are all keen cyclists and we, we will use that form of transport whenever possible, really. Um, in terms of other things, um, apart from the fact that I spend every day of my working life um, <laughs> trying to improve air quality through design or yes. working with clients um, I, I help out with local group um, who are a group of uh, network of schools in the local borough uh, advising on advising them on um, things they can do to improve air quality it's just, just something that I do it's just local interest um, involves one of the schools that I used to go to when I was at primary level yes and it's great to be able to give back at a community level like that so I think I would say that what I do really is aside from very much trying to <laughs> walk the walk and not not just yes not just course. drive a yeah. diesel car and, yeah. and have bonfires no, every weekend no. um, no. <laughs> um <laughs> just uh living the dream eh? living the dream but um yeah helping out and encouraging others by ed- educating them as much as I can and using the resource and time that I have and knowledge that I have from the work that I do to to pass that on. Well, James, uh, it's been very interesting talking to you today about the challenges of air quality, and I've actually learned quite a bit, so thank you very much for that. This podcast has been brought to you in association with Arup. Arup is an independent firm of designers, planners, engineers, consultants, and technical specialists. Arup's aim is to find a better way and shape a better world. For more information, please visit www.arup.com. As usual, we've discussed some key issues in this podcast. If you have any comments on this episode or would like to make your voice heard, you can get in touch via email at hello at environmentjournal.online. And don't forget to subscribe through your podcast platform of choice. It will be good to hear from you. <laughs>